I want to preach this morning on reincarnation. Reincarnation essentially is the idea that when we die, our spirit or soul, if you will, continues first in a sort of nether world for a time and then returns to earth to be reborn in the body of another. Whether you're reborn into a kind, loving home or among the cruel and selfish is a function of the karma you accumulate or burn off during your current life. Sketchy as such notions may appear to those who first hear of it, reincarnation is a very widely held belief. Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, they all affirm reincarnation. Consider these words from Mahatma Gandhi explaining the motivation for his life's work. I cannot think of permanent enmity between man and man, and believing as I do in the theory of rebirth, I live in the hope that if not in this birth, in some other birth, I shall be able to hug all of humanity in friendly embrace. Many Westerners have also shared this view, including those listed in the first reading, plus among many others, the writers, James Joyce, William Butler Yeats, Herman Hesse, Jack London, J.D. Salinger, and Isaac Besavis Singer, the biologist Thomas Huxley, and the psychologist Eric Erickson. Many Unitarian Universalists, too. I'll just focus on two of them. Consider John Murray Spears, a 19th century Universalist minister. Spears was a leading advocate against slavery and capital punishment, an operator on the Underground Railroad, an activist ally of William Lord Garrison, Lydia Maria Child, Dorothea Dix, and others in support of women's rights, labor reform, and socialism. After the Civil War, he veered in another direction, becoming the nation's most flamboyant spiritualist and free love advocate. Channeling John Murray, his universalist forebear of a half century earlier. And I read a couple of those (laughs) sermons and they're actually pretty good. John Murray Spears was a firm believer in reincarnation. And then Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was a Unitarian minister. He served in the pulpit, but his personal Theology became more naturalistic and humanistic, and he felt it was more appropriate for him to leave that rather than tick off his uh, senior wardens. He left the church for the lecture circuit, becoming the author and nationally recognized uh, man of letters whom we know of today. He was a contempt, he embraced a certain contemplative, personal, natural, and very practical down-to-earth mysticism. Well, what do you mean, mysticism? Um, I tried to make what I thought were the basic dimensions of mystical consciousness. To look for reality within, to find meaning in mystery, to discover the eternal in the temporal, to, to see, as Thoreau says, I cannot come nearer God in heaven than I am to Walden either, right here. 
and to realize the value of solitude, of sitting still for a couple of years in Thoreau's case, to find joy in service, to discern honor in humility, and to give supremacy to love. As old Universalist Church in Stowe said above the chancel of God is love. Emerson's essay, The Oversoul, kind of a transpersonal, proposes a transpersonal linking spirit or principle conjoining one's inmost heart to that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of spirit and an openness to the forces that create in a cold life. From the oversoul in Emerson, we read, and I have it right here, well-worn old copy. We live in succession, in division, in parts, in particles. Meanwhile, within us is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. And this deep power in which we exist, whose beatitude is all accessible to us, is not only self-sufficing and perfect in every hour, but the act of seeing and the thing seen, the seer and the spectacle, the subject and the object are one. We see the world piece by piece as the sun, the moon, the animal, the tree, but the whole of which these are the shining parts is the soul. Only by the vision of that wisdom can the horoscope of the ages be read. And once read, I might add, everything starts to fall into place. One's view about life and their purpose changes. And they understand uh, what one of my mentors, Rabbi Jerome Molino, said is the most important passage in the Bible, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The essence, it seems to me, comes down to the Lewis Carroll's repeated query in Alice in Wonderland. Who are you? Who are you? The Western scientific outlook has it that we're physical beings who sometimes have spiritual experiences. But could it be the other way around? Could we be spiritual beings having a material, physical experience? This is Emerson's position, and Louisa May Alcott, and Max Planck's. As Planck said, we cannot get behind consciousness. Of course, such notions are impossible to prove scientifically. Anything immaterial cannot be measured, and ergo cannot be accepted as evidence. But they can be studied empirically, phenomenologically. Ian Stevenson, the UVA professor who interviewed hundreds and hundreds of children. Stevenson conducted actually more than 2,500 case studies of kids claiming to remember past lives. He methodically documented each child's statements and then identified the deceased person the child identified with and verified the facts of the deceased person's life that matched the child's memory. He also matched birthmarks and birth defects to wounds and scars of the deceased, verified by medical records, such as autopsy photographs. 
Carl Sagan referred to examples from Stevenson's investigations in his book, The Demon Haunted World, as examples of carefully collected empirical data. Although he rejected reincarnation as an explanation for the stories, he admitted they deserved further serious study. Sam Harris cited Stevenson's works in his book, The End of Faith, as a part as part of a body of data that seems to attest to the reality of psychic phenomena. But my point, Stevenson's research cannot be blithely dismissed. Jim B. Tucker, Antonian, Antonia Mills, and others have carried these studies forward, and I encourage you to check them out. Numerous Eastern scholars and traditions attest to reincarnation. I'll mention just one, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which uh, posits a bardo state uh, in between the uh, earthly and uh, whatever next realm. And uh, Tibetan Buddhists are encouraged to, when they die, to move toward the light, go toward the light, uh, or be, be, be reborn and go through the whole earth experience again. I remember one of the members of my church in Santa Fe, Joe Bolt, being in the hospital as he was dying with his children, his family, and friends all around Tibetan chants to usher him on his way. And he did die, and it was a really beautiful thing, actually. So what do I think about reincarnation? I am sure not about to dismiss it. I believe with Emerson also, and with Max Planck, that consciousness is a priori. I've especially enjoyed researcher Jim B. Tucker's books, helping me understand quantum mechanics and how, at its deepest levels, the universe is far more magical and wondrous than Isaac Newton ever imagined, and apparently altogether influenced, in fact, determined by our observations of it. Further study, as Carl Sagan suggests, is warranted. I also like and strongly approve of the moral message implicit in reincarnation, learning how to grow beyond narcissism, how to focus one's life energy on bringing love and knowledge into the world, and helping others to do the same is what it's all about. What I don't recognize and have a hard time getting behind is the whole what architecture of the netherworld as described by many of the authors writing on this subject. We have Western notions of, so, of it, streets paved with gold, choirs of angels, seven ascending heavens, or Hieronymus Bosch visions of hell. In Eastern notions, you have, as uh, Amanda kind of uh, illustrated in, in her poetry, the deities and bodhisattvas and various graphs and blueprints outlining how reality is ordered on the other side of the veil. How do these people know this stuff, it seems to me, or what makes them think they know? I find it kind of amusing, but all conjecture. I want to close with two anecdotes about the end of life for two well-known proponents of reincarnation, the Buddha, and the Unitarian Henry David Thoreau. Now, the Buddha, the story is that he died because he ate some poison mushrooms. It was in error. He was 
after 35 years of preaching around India, he was visiting some uh, ashram and he um, was served dinner, but the, the it was bad choice of meal. The mushrooms were poison ones and he it took him three days to die. And while he was dying, his disciples, Ananda and the others were all around and they're going, oh, and they, at one point they got into this little argument on who was going to sit at the Buddha's right hand in heaven when he died and who, what, what the situation would be. And he interrupted them. He kind of, they thought he was on his last moments, but he looked up and he said, I have preached for 35 years from east to west, north to south, all over India, and I've spoken to none of this. I've spoken about suffering on earth. And it's alleviation. And there's a story that Henry David Thoreau, he was in his house in Concord and he was dying. And some of his uh, kind of disciples or his his fans were there. And um, he was in an upstairs room and the housekeeper opened the curtain. Uh, it was a morning uh, and it was bright outside. And... Um, the person said, um, ah, what a beautiful day it is. And Thoreau, second last utterance was, um, but I shall see a fairer vista still. And they all turned around and came to his bed and said, was he seeing the farther shore? And he kind of smiled and he looked or kind of winked and he said, one world at a time. And that's its end, and that's my end too. One world at a time. Let us uh, contemplate reincarnation for the good it'll do, but keep in mind it's here where we're called to be and the incarnation in which we are currently uh, responsible. Amen.